There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly ebay gets it so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch stitch sole and logo is checked by experts with ebay authenticity guarantee you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach ensure your next purchase is the real deal visit ebay.com for terms Today's episode has been sponsored by Jay McLaughlin. Jay McLaughlin is a timeless lifestyle brand with incredible style and a spirit of connection. I am obsessed with Jay McLaughlin and have been so honored that they are sponsoring my Zibiverse tour. It just so happens that the tour goes to so many communities and areas of the country that have Jay McLaughlin stores. And I love that the brand is philanthropic through Jay McLaughlin's local and loyal programming host store events to give back to organizations that are meaningful to Jay McLaughlin's local communities. I also love the fact that the clothes are just so chic. They make me feel polished and modern. And the best part is that most of the line comes in fabrics that don't wrinkle. I especially love the dresses, the cashmere sweaters, the other sweaters. You'll see them all over my Instagram. I typically tag at Jay McLaughlin. And so you can check it out. It is absolutely one of my favorite brands and I am over the moon excited to be working with them. In fact, I want to share the love with all of you. Jay McLaughlin is giving 20% off new customers and listeners of my podcast with special code ZIBBY20, capital Z-I-B-B-Y 20. That's 20% off for new customers and listeners of the podcast with special code capital Z Zibby 20. Take advantage of it today. My favorites are this white open long cashmere sweater that I've been wearing on every flight that I've taken on this tour. I have a blue with light blue horizontal striped sweater, several dresses I even wore on Corny America. Check it out. Jay McLaughlin. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now, thank you so much, called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com. Dot com and definitely check out those shows as well. 
Hugh Bonneville is the author of Playing Under the Piano, From Downton to Darkest Peru. Hugh Bonneville's film credits include Notting Hill, Iris, The Monuments Men, as well as the Paddington movies and Downton Abbey movies. I Came By, a contemporary thriller by director Babak Anvari, is currently on Netflix. Hugh's television roles include Ian Fletcher in the BAFTA-winning 2012 and W1A on the BBC, and Robert Crawley in ITV's global hit, Downton Abbey, for which he received nominations for a Golden Globe, two Emmys, and along with his fellow cast members, won three SAG Awards for Outstanding Ensemble in a Drama Series. He recently completed filming The Gold, a six-part drama about the 1983 Brinksmat Bullion robbery for BBC One, iPlayer, and Paramount+. Plus. Hughes' stage career spans more than three decades and includes seasons with the National Theatre and the Royal Shakespeare Company. His most recent appearances were in Enemy of the People and Shadowlands, both at Chichester Festival Theatre. He was a patron of the National Youth Theatre of Great Britain, the National Youth Arts Trust, Seen and Heard, the Primary Shakespeare Company, and the South Downs National Park Trust. He lives in West Sussex with his wife, Lulu Williams. They have a son, Felix. Welcome, Hugh. Thank you so much for coming on Mom's Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss playing under the piano from Downton, like Downton Abbey, obviously, to Darkest Peru. Welcome. <laughs> I thought you were going to say downtown then, because so many Americans do. I would never have said something <laughs> like that. Not me. I'm prepared. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me to your beautiful home. Thank you. Your, I love the fact that all the books in the library are colour-coordinated, or rather they're, you know, they're laid out according to colour. Where did that idea come from? What does it tell me about your childhood and your psyche? Uh, should we go there? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, have one, I have a cousin who does exactly the same. He's adorable, I hasten to add, okay. but I'm intrigued. And he's never quite had the answer. He says, I think, I just, he says, I just like the look of the light blue next to the yellow, next to the dark blue. Do you have a method? Um, is there a method behind your madness? Not really, but you're turning this whole thing around. But no, I don't know. I took them all down during COVID and I rearranged, I put them all on the floor, everything in the whole room and thought I would, I don't know. I just thought I'll just put them by color. I don't even know how I thought of it. So I started with a, a shelf of white. And, yeah. and I put that all the way down at the bottom, and then I just kind of moved from there. And then I realized how many books are white and red and black. Yeah, absolutely. And there's also a lot of blues. Yeah. But essentially, it's reminded me of something in, in my childhood where I had like the, those, do you have top trumps here? Those sort of game cards, which mm-hmm. are like, they're like playing cards, but they're for the theme. Oh, like baseball things. cards and things? I guess that sort of yeah. thing. And, and or, you know, somebody's power in, in this area is 10, and then you have to, you know, or, or their... Um, their skills are five or six or something. Anyway, and, and I used to arrange these cards, sometimes according to the colour of them, sometimes to the to the you know level of skill that this card was at or which team they were in. And it got very confusing because I changed them like once a year. I'd, I'd recategorise. I had dreams of being a librarian for a while. Oh. But that soon evaporated. Yeah. Are we digressing? We haven't even started. Oh, we haven't even, okay, your book. <laughs> okay. Why, let's start with the author name because this actually isn't your real name. Huh. So go yeah. into that. Oh, okay. So my, my full name on my on my birth certificate was Hugh Richard Bonniewell Williams. My father uh, always used to say that the Bonniewell was originally Bonneville and had come over to England from France uh, in the Huguenot persecution. And then when I came to being an actor, there had been a Hugh Williams and in equity, which is the British Union, uh, you can't have two people with the same name. So I met an actor, uh, sorry, I met my first director, my first audition really, um, said, oh, I remember Hugh Williams, and he went banging on about Hugh Williams for ages, this, this former <laughs> actor. And I thought, I'm never going to get a word in Edgeway, so I thought, I know what, I'll use my middle names. So for ages I was Richard Bonneville, 
because I'd adopted the French bit because it sounded nicer than Bonnie Well. <laughs> and, um, and then eventually, I remember being at a party once about after I'd been an actor for about 10 years, and my host, didn't, who'd known me as Hugh all my life, didn't introduce me to anyone because he didn't know whether to call me Hugh or Richard. And I thought, how does Reg Dwight cope? Now, who's Reg Dwight? <laughs> Do you know who Reg Dwight is? Elton John. Or Gordon Sumner. Who's Gordon Sumner? Sting. So I thought, how do they cope, you know, with people who've either known them in their professional lives or in their, private, in their, in their former lives? So I, I thought, stuff it, I'll go back to Hugh. So Hugh Bonneville. That's a very <laughs> long-winded answer as to why Hugh Bonneville is my name. Or that you felt very comfortable just comparing yourself to Elton John and Sting, you know? Well, I know. The three of you. These they're global, like, these no. global stars, you know. <laughs> three musketeers, you three. <laughs> okay, so we've got your name. Why write the book? Well, the really simple reason is because a publisher nagged me about six years ago to get up to do something. He, he contacted me out of the blue, an agent actually, a literary agent in London, and he said, I think you should write a comic novel. And I said, oh, God, that's far too grown up. And, you know, I've got, I've got a day job, for heaven's sake. And he said, well, how about an autobiography? And I said, I really, autobiography sounds smacks of accuracy and, uh, and you know, chronology and indeed pomposity, if you're not careful. So he said, well, at least a memoir, somewhere where you can string stories together. And so that's what I set out to do. And I just didn't do it. I, I wrote a chapter with great ceremony in about 2017, 16, 17. And I sent a pic, I got my son to take a picture of me, you know, starting writing and I've sent it off to him. I said, look, I've started Rory, finally. I said, I don't want a book publishing deal. I just want to, I want it to pour out of me. Yeah. Well, nothing poured, it didn't, even, <laughs> didn't, didn't even trickle. And when it did, I sort of put a, you know, finger in the dike, so to speak, and sort of pushed it back. And then my son went traveling. He's now, he's now 21, so he was just turning 20. and. Uh, he went travelling in the summer after the pandemic was, you know, he could actually go around Europe a bit. And uh, he texted saying, I'm, I'm leaving Sam, my travelling companion, for just for a week. I've, I've uh, hired a little Airbnb hut up in the hills and I thought, this is interesting, what's he up to? And uh, sure enough, he sent me a screenshot of his word count on his first day. He said, uh, I've just written 4,000 words of my novel, Dad. How many words have you written today? And I felt so ashamed of my son. <laughs> So the next day I picked up the, the phone to the agent. I said, I need a publishing deal. I need a deadline. I need to, you know, I need someone cracking the whip. And so I sat down uh, this time last year. So I'm talking about sort of October, November last year and got on with it. And this is my next downfall because I'm so naive in this world of books. They said we want 100,000 words. So I wrote 160,000. I thought they'd be pleased. No, they were really <laughs> just a bit, a bit cheesed off. But uh, now we had to do a lot of editing. And I said, what's wrong then? And, and the publisher said... Well, look, you know, I'm enjoying it hugely, but I'm on page 100 and you're still only eight. You know? <laughs> we need to just really pick and choose our stories here. So that, then the process, you know, as you know, murdering your darlings and me wanting to write about, I don't know, my passion for the arts and education and him saying that's boring, tell us more about Maggie Smith or whatever it might be. So I, I had to find a balance in the end. But I, the, over, the overall, well, two things. A, I enjoyed the process and B isn't the unconscious and extraordinary thing because I had no intention when I set out to write about my parents in the way that I do. And my father had passed away just before the pandemic, but and he had dementia and he was 94 and he had a you know, really good innings and all those things. But of course, you're still losing a loved one. And I found that I couldn't stop myself writing about him and mum and their influence on me and my sister and my brother. And the way that they when I was growing up, had put a gentle sort of cape around us in terms of the arts. The, 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 in the background of the background noise of my youth was culture with a small C. It was going to art galleries and 
you know, English country houses, which bored the flip out of me at the time, and museums and theatre. Theatre lit a blue touch paper and, and, you know, caught my imagination and opera and stuff that I didn't, you know, most of it I didn't get into. But it was there. It was there in the background of my life. And only when I got into my teenage years and started to meet boys and girls from completely different cultures than mine or backgrounds to mine across the UK through an organisation called the National Youth Theatre, which brought kids from all over the country together, did I realise how fortunate I'd been, how lucky I'd been to have that, as I say, low-level hum of culture and taken it for granted. And these, so many of my mates that I, that I forged over those years didn't have that. And that's been a real, I've, I've carried that into my adult life, you know, hugely. And I'm passionate about the arts and the young and the way that it unlocks our imagination and self-expression. And just looking at all these books here, you know, that's because people have been allowed to let their imaginations free. It's a very long answer to a very short question. That's okay. I love it. <laughs> uh, actually, when I read that part of your book, I was sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, I'm such a bad mom. I should really, because my parents did the same thing that your parents did. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really think much of it, but they were always taking us to plays and museums yeah. and all that stuff. I don't, I don't do yeah. that that much with my kids, but I guess yeah. they'll just be okay eventually. They'll be marvelous. <laughs> You have to say that. You haven't met them yet. No, I'm kidding. Let's go back to your parents for a second, because you start off by saying, there's not much to say here. The only time they fought was in the car, and I thought they were getting divorced. And it was a very funny scene, as all of your scenes are. But generally, they had a very happy marriage, and you all went along in this nice life. And then you didn't find out until after your mother passed away that she had this whole James Bond secret career (laughs) going on. And the most poignant moment there was at the funeral and I'm so sorry about your losses that you heard that they said because she had a young boy you know she only worked three days a week and all of a sudden you were like oh my gosh I was the young boy and here I am at age 50 or when you were sitting there thinking I can't believe yeah what she did for me yeah I mean I to be fair I did I did know that she'd worked in that in the in the secret service in MI6 as it's called in the UK but I certainly didn't know anything about the work and neither did my father she took the understandably took the secrets to her grave and only latterly did I find out a tiny bit you know and she'd always said I just did some filing dear well she did but it was obviously a rather sensitive material and you know had international implications and etc but I and when she told me age when I suppose I was about nine or ten that she was going to take up this job uh, three days a week in London I was furious you know how selfish could she be leaving me you know well, what was I going to do after school if there was no one to play with or give me my sandwiches and my orange you know, orange squash and as I say, when, when it came to the eulogy at her funeral, my uncle, you know, had, had, had been in touch with uh, someone in the service who basically sort of said, yes, you're allowed to say that, you know, that she served here, etc. And that, you know, a number of times we tried to get her to do more than three days a week, but she said, no, I've got a young son at home that I need to look after. So that's when I felt a big lump in my throat and I thought, you selfish little... Mm. <laughs> and, you know, all you could think about, of course, as, as we all know, the world revol- revolves around no one but yourself when you were eight, nine, ten. And I look back now, and I look back then, rather, looking, you know, as, as her wicker coffin was there in the nave of the church, and I thought, well, you, you know, you, get, you, you did everything for me and my brother and sister. She was a very special lady, as was my father. Yeah. <laughs> well, you wrote about them beautifully. Thank and I think you. that's one of the greatest things that memoir can do, is you can bring back people that you love and let them get to know people who never would have met them. Hmm. Right? We all get, like, little snippets. It's true, isn't it? And... Again, talking about the, the, the uh, when I went, I went into MI6 actually to give a lunchtime talk once, and this guy came up to me a little bit younger than me and said, "I work with your mum," and uh, so that blew me away because to actually have met someone, this was after her passing, obviously, 
who had actually known my mother in a completely different world to the one I knew her from. And he said, yeah, whenever we were sitting, uh, you know, doing the crossword in our little cubbyhole, whatever, we'd suddenly hear these footsteps on the lightning on the linoleum coming down the hallway and we'd say, quick, there's Pat, quick, jump to it. And it wasn't the, the sort of fact that she was an authority figure to them. It was the, the comment about footsteps. And I remembered the sound of her footsteps. And that really struck me. It's amazing how sense memory can affect you in different ways and come at you in different ways, be it a smell or a sound or, you know, like when we put on a record from 30 years ago, 20 years ago, and you think, oh, and it transports you. And so in that moment, I was transported. I could remember when my mum was in sort of efficient mode, she went into double-time footsteps, you know. <laughs> and, I, and I was there with him. I could, I could see her on that corridor. It was very strange and, and, and rather beautiful. Uh-uh. <laughs> Well, you did a nice job of weaving in your family story with the trials and tribulations of becoming an actor and how you said that now people think, like, this is this didn't come, that your starring in Downton Abbey did not come from 25 years or whatever of your of your career and all the other amazing roles. And you, you put all these little behind-the-scenes moments. And the funniest one, I thought, was with Martin Scorsese and that... Can you tell that story? That was so funny. Uh, well, and yeah. it's just one of your many self-deprecating moments. So, anyway. Well, it was when not the film Notting Hill was coming out in New York. And I was standing on the sidewalk with uh, Tim McInerney, who plays one of the characters of the gang of friends in the, in the movie. And the film stars Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts, for those who don't know. And Anyway, Julia Roberts' agent was very kindly hosting a soiree for us at her apartment in uh, off Central Park. And so a few of us were gathered on the sidewalk and... Tim McInerney and his girlfriend got into the first cab and at that moment there was a, 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 an older guy and a young guy coming towards us along the sidewalk and I could see Tim gesturing at me out of the, out of the back of the cab as they pulled off, sort of pointing at me in a way and I thought, you know, what is, is, my, my, is my fly button undone? What's he doing? Why is he pointing? And then, and then I was standing with the director, Roger Michel, and it turned out that the guy, the older guy coming along was uh, I think either his agent or anyway they knew each other and uh, so yeah what are the chances here you are and um, and this is and he introduced the young guy at, w- at which point the you know the evening traffic was just cacophonous and there was a car horn I didn't catch his name and I shook hands anyway they'd obviously just come from this meeting with Martin Scorsese because the young guy this young whippersnapper pulled out a Polaroid and said hey look here's a you know here's a picture of me and Marty uh, and I looked at it and there was this guy and Martin Scorsese in a some room somewhere and. And he said, yeah, we're having a monobrow contest or something. And I thought, you cheeky lad, that's Martin Scorsese. That is the greatest, you know, one of the greatest living directors we have. And God, and you cheeky chap. And anyway, we all set our pleasantries and we got we got into our cab and off they went. And we were driving off and God, the young people of today, they have no idea, Roger. And Roger said, do you, you know, do you have any idea who that was? I said, yeah, I mean, it's just some cheeky young chap, you know, showing off that he'd been to an audition with Martin Scorsese. God. And in Roger said, well, I think Martin Scorsese can put up being teased by Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> and I went, oh, OK. <laughs> and by the time we arrived at the party, Julia opened the door of her agent's apartment and said, this is life imitating art, Hugh, we've heard. And uh, because Tim McEnany had said, Leo DiCaprio is about to meet Hugh and he has no idea who this guy is. And then, of course, my character in Notting Hill has no idea who Julia Roberts is. So it was uh, yeah, one example of life imitating art. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. 
from mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You also tell the story of the many trips it took to be rejected from four weddings and a funeral. Oh, yeah. Well, yes, that was yes, that was a, uh, a long, tortuous journey. This was um, obviously several years before Notting Hill, and there was this low-budget movie that uh, everyone under the sun of my peer group was auditioning for this lead role which was a gorgeous role obviously uh, and then I was all, you know, asked to audition for increasingly small parts <laughs> even then eventually for a cameo and, and I didn't get it because uh, this was a low budget film that was uh, not going to make its money back and, and the director needed actors who knew how to hit their marks on a film set and I'd never done a film and so he said I'm, you know, I'm really sorry it's not going not gonna to work anyway yeah, the film went on to do quite well let's face it <laughs> <laughs> their loss you know, They're lost, exactly. It all worked out okay in the end. Yeah. So what do you want to happen now with your life? Like, you've done all of this stuff. You've been working your whole career. You had a very, this blockbuster films and show with Downton Abbey, you're renowned and all this stuff. Now you have a book. Like, where do you see the meaning in your life coming now? Like, what's... Ooh, that's a good question. The meaning in my life. Do you know, some people of my age, you know, I'm 59 now. I, I, I nearly said 58. I was 59 just a week ago. So Happy I'm, birthday. I'm getting Happy used birthday. To, oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> getting used to saying 59. Not 60, 59. <laughs> it's good. Um, I know a lot of people of my age are beginning to, I guess, if they're fortunate enough to, to start thinking about maybe winding down and, you know, maybe or taking a different path. But it would be a, the idea, the notion of sort of retiring or, or, or changing pace or changing direction it's like asking a painter to stop painting or a, I, I can't imagine it or a writer to stop writing, I guess. I can't really imagine it. And the, the good thing about acting, you can go on playing older and older parts. <laughs> I'm not saying I necessarily want to die on stage or on a, on a film set, but, but I, I, have no, I have no concept of retirement. And I never have uh, in the same way that I've never had any concept of job security it's, it's always just a you know it's a lurch from one thing to the next and uh, I just want to keep lurching really I love that you know you're one of the few men in their books who I've read talk about a miscarriage that happened to them at some point along the way mm. and I thought it was really interesting that you included that I know I'm kind of jumping all over with your life mm. chronology here but I was wondering what made you put that in if you think about it often if, if it was meant to inspire because you obviously you and your wife were thinking so hard about it after that it wasn't until you relaxed that you could have your son. Yeah. And just, I don't know, I thought that was a really interesting two pages. It's a very short little chapter there. And, and it's because it was, you know, 
it's like joining a club when you discover so many how many people go through something like that and for some it's a it's like a little you know drop in the ocean it's oh well we had a miscarriage we move on and for some it's the biggest heartbreak and it's a repeated heartbreak and it's a source of great trauma and pain and I don't know I just wanted to I suppose just really amplify how valuable Felix became our son because he was long looked for and there were times and I'm sure many people have experienced this where you're bashing your head against a brick wall and you think well, this is never going to happen and, and okay there are other routes one can go down and it's when we'd done all this you know all the th- all the temperature charts and the this and the that and and eventually the, the doctor just sort of took a look at one of these charts and just tore it up. And we went, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he said, just don't put this pressure on yourselves. Just, just. And we went on vacation and ba-ding, there we were. <laughs> Nine months later. So we were incredibly blessed and fortunate. And the name Felix means fortunate. So I think, you know, I just, uh, I just wanted to etch that little anecdote in. It wasn't, you know, don't get me wrong. We didn't go through years and years of, 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 of all sorts of therapies, be it either medicinal or emotional. It was just a, a sadness and, 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 and it came good. And we're, we're very, very lucky. That's great. I did notice sort of in your whole life, it's been, you've had like a really wonderful life. Like it's been wonderful to watch your parents, you know, there was not too much conflict. You, you kept at it. You persevered. You eventually like attained like the height of everything you'd ever wanted. You got your son and you're married and you know, it's like, it's pretty good. (laughs) I mean, you know, as I say, it's, it's a memoir. And I pick out the best bits. <laughs> uh, I'm allowed to do that. No, it's I, I have had a blessed life, and you know I'm a firm believer that we're only here once. And I, I'm I'm very fortunate when I look at, you know, I have friends who suffer greatly with depression, with 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 lack of direction, with uh, with a huge amount of pain in their lives. And I, ever since I was a kid, I've, I've uh, been encouraged to embrace every day and count count my blessings. And I do, of course, they have blue days and and days of inertia, etc. But you know, I've always uh, my my parents grew up in the in the early days of what, what we call in Britain the National Health Service when the the whole medical system was transformed and made available to all at whatever you know despite um, any ability to pay, and it became an ethos in Britain that was uh, is being clung on to just about these days, and so their sense of public duty and public service was paramount. Mum and Dad, and they met at medical school. Mum was a nurse and, and Dad was training to be a doctor. And so their sense of being, knowing how fortunate they were uh, and that, how fortunate we three children were was something that was not drummed into us in a, in a sort of, uh, don't you realise how fortunate you are? It was just there and, and their sense of wanting to give back because the system had trained them and they wanted to give back to the, the, you know, the community or to the society that had, had trained them. And I feel very fortunate to have... Been, to have managed to keep working for the, this long, you know, in the way that I have, and the next, and lurching from from job to job, so I have had a blessed life, and I'm not, I'm never, I never take it for granted. I'm never, I hope, smug about it. I, I you know, I work really bloody hard, and uh, and of course there are, you know, there are pitfalls along the way, and uh, I try and allude to some of those, but I, I, I'm luckily, I'm wired to be optimistic, I'm wired to be positive, and again, I feel fortunate to be so. Wonderful. All right, my last question. You said you just kind of whipped out 160 words in what, a couple months? 160,000. I'm sorry, did I say 160 (laughs) words? My brain is obviously not working completely today. 160,000 words. I saw the numbers in my head, but that's fine. In only a few months, if you were working on this just a year ago, what is your advice to aspiring authors? 
Well, do you know, I asked that very question to a couple of authors, you know, friends of mine in the UK, and I said, how do you do it? And actually, I'd, I'd played Rule Dahl in a film of, a few years back, and uh, so obviously read up a lot about him. And he wrote two hours in the morning and had a lunch break, and he wrote two hours in the afternoon. And I thought, well, as a lightweight, you know, <laughs> I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write eight or ten hours a day. And, of course, the, the, the longer you write, actually, the less productive I, I found it was. And actually, there is something about, there's something valuable in those short bursts of energy when your brain and your your fluidity of thought is at, at its at its you know uh, most accessible i suppose and i think and as, and as every writer i asked they said you just got to sit down with a blank page and do it and um which sounds you know easier than easier said than done but once i got into the rhythm of it and some days i you know i would write uh, i'd write five those seven or eight hours and on the whole i'd find that the last couple of hours probably weren't that <laughs> great or i'd write two hours and think I can't write any more today or there's nothing coming or I'm just bashing my head against a brick wall or and then like with a sort of what you know legato piece of music that suddenly soars you think I can't stop like my fingers are going and I can't stop whether it's good or not you've got to let it finish you've got to let it come out so I think you know I'm not a writer by trade you know I've enjoyed writing this having this experience of writing this memoir and maybe I'll write some more in the future but I think a sense of self-discipline about it, and and actually, yeah, setting yourself a target. I mean, you know, the fact that it took me years to get it, to get round to it, and then when I did, I really enjoy sitting down and having a structure and, and, and doing it. But I think my next time around, don't overwrite. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. Oh, I appreciate well, thank, it. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.